Gilda. And you are listening to Saturday Night High, the podcast where we break down SNL episodes new and old. And today we have a special episode. Well, the first in a series of special episodes. Yes, today we will be talking about Live from New York. It is the oral history of SNL. Um, the SNL Bible. And we're talking about the first two parts. Which we'll be covering, you know, from 1975 until another time in history. Um, <laughs> so, well, until, I, until I find the place in my notes where I get there. This is the first time you're tuning in. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we are both pretty stoned right now. I am, uh, wonderfully baked on a pineapple diesel, uh, AeroPro cartridge. They're magnetic cartridges. They're really cool. Um, but yeah, so. We're not sponsored, but we could be. Contact us. SatNightHighPod at gmail.com. Um, but yeah, so today... We're doing the first in a series of episodes on the SNL book, and we'll be covering the years. Uh, we'll be covering part one, so we can just jump into that right now if you'd like. Yes, and to answer that burning question, where does part two end? It's 1980. Yes. So five um, years of time. It's called Live from New York, the complete uncensored history of Saturday Night Live is told by its stars, writers, and guests. Edited by James Andrew Miller and Tom Shales. And so, section one, would you like to kick things off? Well, section one, you know, I think the thing that I get from this section is a deep sense that Lorne Michaels has a controlling attitude about the show. But, I mean, what he's doing works, so, hey. Right. Yeah, I what what blows my mind is that it was literal children that were running the show. It would they the, these people were in their early mid 30s, maybe. They were kids, but that was what worked and there was no TV for people their age at that time. So it was really uncharted territory, but I guess giving them 90 minutes on a Saturday night, hey, like anything could happen. Yeah, and, and the stuff that does happen is drugs. <laughs> also there, sex. Yeah, there were lots of drugs. Um on page 87, Lauren Michaels, the widow Belushi was clo- quoted in a book about a time when she found coke on John in the first season of the show and she said, "Where did you get it?" And he told her that Chevy and I gave it to him, but he had been doing coke for years. Chevy Chase then says, everybody who was supplying him, everybody was supplying him, supposedly. No, I was supplying Lorne, who was supplying John. It was a middleman kind of thing. And it's just like, cool. I'm glad they had this chain worked out of how to get contraband to John Belushi. And and, and they wonder, they're like, oh. It's kind of like a fraternity. Oh, 100%. And it blows my mind. They're like, oh, we didn't know. And like, it's like, I understand that they might not have known, but at the same time, like, you knew at the time if you were helping them get drugs, you knew. But they seem to like have no concept of drugs possibly being bad for you. And like, also, they talk about uh, eating disorders. They're like, oh, yeah, we thought that was a 
a nice easy way to lose weight um to keep the me. pounds off <laughs> right yeah no and it it was yeah, yeah it was completely it was a completely different world a completely different frame of mind for everything um yeah yeah so that that is something that you really do have to again when watching early shows and even reading this it's like wait okay this was a very long time ago the 17th floor smelling like weed um so you come to the seven uh tom schiller again on page 87 page 87 had a lot of good drug stuff um <laughs> tom schiller says belushi was the first person to show me how to roll a joint still don't know how to roll a joint if anyone wants to send any tips in as to how to roll a joint you can find us on twitter unless you're my ex because my ex would do that no i, I will actively not take his advice thanks though thanks no thanks to our twitter which is at sat night high pod and night is spelled n-i-t-e because character limits you come to the 17th floor and as you walk down the hall the stench of marijuana would greet you like a hundred feet away from the offices the kids were doing a show and it was all right. I remember Lauren at one of the earliest meetings when we were sitting in his office, the first thing he did was light up a joint and pass it around. It was like saying, it's okay to smoke up here. And, or, it's okay to smoke up here. I don't know where the emphasis is in that sentence, but either way, it works. Ooh. And, like... Didn't think of that. I, uh, yeah, that's my kind of meeting. I think that's how most of our meetings right. have worked. Yeah, except... Our meetings aren't the first ever live television show on a Saturday night. Valid. Doing all the other stuff that we're doing and that I can't some... really name. Oh, yeah, no. And for some people, for if you are not familiar as to how Saturday Night Live came into creation, I suppose we should baby step back that, baby step that one. But anyway, we're going to, it's... Johnny Carson, he wanted to be able to take more time off during the year. And I mean, at this point, he was an older dude. And, you know, he'd earned a, he'd earned a few more vacation times. Stephen Colbert, they, ta they take their time. They take it. You know, it's not easy. Um, he wanted to be able to take more vacation time and have reruns during the week. And normally 11.30, or at least on Saturday nights, they would rerun Johnny Carson episodes from the prior previous few weeks and if they kept running them on saturday nights then they couldn't really justify running even more reruns during the week so oh johnny takes a week off and we have reruns there instead of saturday night what do we put in saturday night ah let's just give it to the kids they're weird they'll figure it out that's, yeah that's really i that's i think that's you know, not exactly how that went down but you know the abridged His impact version. like johnny carson was just like fuck it Saturday nights, do something else. And Lauren Michaels came in and said, okay, I got you. You, you, take, a, you take an extra week. We'll, we'll fix this. Just, I'll, I'll, in 30 years, I'll, I'll have all of NBC's late night programming. It's, it's, a, it's not a thing. Don't worry about it. It's fine. <laughs> Think the, as something, you, you also brought up the amount of sexism that was in the show. Or at least in the... That oh, was in the, my God. The sexism in the culture surrounding the show or in the writers' rooms. Holy lord, this weed is good. Um, the sexism was everywhere is really where we're getting at. <laughs> yeah, and on page 36, 
a good example of that is Ann Bates, Beats, Bates, Ann Bates, saying they had been paying us the same amount, which was a big $7.50 a week. And NBC told me, oh, we're not supposed to be paying you as much as Michael. We've been paying you $7.50 a week, but that's a mistake. And we want the money back. They said it had been a bookkeeping error. And I basically said, go fuck yourself, which is the appropriate response. Exactly. That is so messed up. Yeah, why, and she continues on saying, why shouldn't I make the same as him? I don't know, because he had more credits or something, or because he had a penis. And that's exactly it, because it was 1975. And, well, even now, having a penis will get you more money. Yep, that's just how it is, folks. It is. The potential first cast blows my mind. Uh, Richard Pryor, Lily Tomlin, uh, George Carlin, who, well, he wasn't in the first cast. He was the first host of the show. Tune into our other really episode. Too, season right? one, episode one of Saturday Night High, which should be out at the same time as this, hopefully. Cross our fingers and pray we get accepted. Uh, yeah, Linda Ronstadt. That's, I thought that was an interesting choice. Like, she, I, I love her music. Her backing band was originally the Eagles. And she was like, guys, you are too good. You need to go. Like, or they maybe, I don't know if she said that, but they all basically decided to go and leave and do their own thing. And yeah, so her backing band became the Eagles. Sure, I saw one of the Eagles in Disney. <laughs> really? Yeah. Don't ask me which one. No, Don Henley. Don Henley. I um was he performing or was he just like walking around as a dude and you knew? No, he was performing. He was okay. performing Witchy Woman. That I love that song. That song is about Stevie Nicks. Yeah. And it's well, yeah, it's I a love incredible that. Eagle song. I saw the Eagles a number of times prior to Glenn Fry passing. Rest in peace, Same. Glenn Fry. I mean, in terms of more sexism. Dan Aykroyd's period <laughs> comment, and this is on page forty-eight. Oh, fuck. Uh, uh, da, da. Gilda Radner. This is talking about the screen test tapes, uh, which parts were shown on the fortieth anniversary special. They were such babies. This is the, the videos are so cute, but yeah, Gilda Radner uh surprisingly seems the least at ease in front of the camera she giggles looks off towards the wings where lauren michaels is standing i'm not going to talk about food gilda says i'm not going to talk about guys so i don't have anything to say at all she rambles for a few seconds then asks wait can we get an audience in here Aykroyd, just out of camera range, tries to help by asking such questions as what gilda would do if your period came on right now what would she do? Nothing. She would wait until she was done and then, like, awkwardly waddle to the bathroom and go do what she needed to do. Like, what uh, what, what kind yeah, of question? It's just straight-up gross harassment. And I love... I love Dan Aykroyd, but problematic workplace but environment. That's, yeah. Not cool, dude. Fair. Something else that stood out to me in part one uh, was a quote from Jane Curtin. And... In application to SNL, it makes a lot of sense, but I was obviously well-baked when I read it, and I don't know, I started thinking about it in terms of, like, life and the bigger picture, and on page 93, Jane Curtin says, there were huge highs and huge lows. 
you could have these incredible moments of sheer exhilaration and excitement, and then moments where you just feel like you're a pill, you're a tiny little piece of lint. Uh, you have to put all that stuff aside, hit the ground running, and do what you were trained to do, and hopefully have a good time. More often than not, you did. Judging Kurt is wise. Yes. I agree that Chevy Chase, or at least I, uh, I agree with the thesis put forth by everybody in this book um, that, that Chevy Chase had to leave the show, leave for the show to survive. And because if he had continued, it would have been all about him and everyone else would have been supporting. No, it would not be Saturday Night Live. It would just mm-hmm. be. So it's, it's like, it's like, it would have been the Chevy Chase show. It. George Washington. Oh, I was going to say it's like George Washington <laughs> stepping down from the presidency. <laughs> Uh, okay, we took that in two very different directions. But yeah, no, I, cause no, cause Chevy Chase was never the president of Saturday Night Live. He never had any, t- he was a cast member and he just happened to get popular. Just because he was an air, yeah. We'll get more into that later. <laughs> Pretty sure in part two, there's some juicy Chevy Chase stuff. So he's an incredible comic, but not a great person. And he admits to it in the book himself. So you can come at me all you want, but I'm doing nothing but repeating what people say and then agreeing. So yeah. The oral history. So yeah, that's the first year of Saturday Night Live. I believe it's pronounced exordium. Exordium? Don't know. I think exordium. Exordium? Okay. my vote. All right, let's go with that. So, yeah, we're just going to take a quick break, and we will be back in a bit with part two. Welcome back to Saturday Night High. This is part two of Life from New York, the oral history, the SNL Bible. We will post the indie bookstore link in the show notes indie bound yes thank you thank you (laughs) i Uh, love indie bound yep they are amazing um so yeah part two heyday 1976 to 1980 and this is when things really kick yes a lot happened you know for the show for tv Apparently, who knew censors back then, they were like basically no more risky than pilgrims. Like, I, I honestly, I am surprised that ankles were not an issue. Like, they, they were, they couldn't say pissed off or that sucks on TV. And I tried thinking of just like the past four TV shows I've watched or the past three. And it's like, I, there's been explicit language in all of them. And I'm not saying every la- every word left. You know, there's a little warning there, and you know what you're getting into. I think there's a little E on our episodes. Um, <laughs> no, it's like Breaking Bad would not... It was just so bad. Like, science, bitch! Like, that was a thing. Even though it's 2020, SNL still can't say certain things... But like true, no, true. I did get that. During this period, they did have their first brush with fuck. (laughs) They did have their first brush with fuck. Um, (laughs) Are you familiar with the song "Wild Things" by the Trogs? 
Yes. Okay, good. There's a tape, and they can't, they don't know musical terminology, and they're just trying to create another song that is as much of a hit as their first one. And they just kept saying, fuck, over and over. You had the fucking beat. They kept saying. They couldn't seem to recreate what they'd done. And so Al Franken and Tom Davis had the idea. It's Paul Schaefer, the longtime band leader for David Letterman, who I am such a David Letterman fangirl. I was raised on his shows. I remember when he came back from his years-long death sentence from NBC, and he came back on CBS better than ever, baby, with The Late Show. Uh, I'm proud that I got to see him a number of times before he retired. They had the idea to transcribe this Trogs tape and make a sketch out of it, but make it into a medieval band rehearsing and saying those lines. James Taylor was in this, which is just a fucking wild fact. Um, He was a musical guest that week, and Lorraine Newman. We made up our own word, flogging, instead of fucking. I don't think they made up the word, but... Yeah! Like, what? It said they used that word. Um, instead of fucking, and we would say, well, you had the flogging beat before, and we were all doing British accents, some more successfully than others. So it went very well in the dress rehearsal. And Al Franken said to me, you're getting big laughs. If you want to add any more of those floggings, go ahead. But I got carried away, and just without thinking, I said, you had the fucking beat before, and then I, oh my god, I watched the tape of it, and I go white. Dot, dot, dot. Everyone in the sketch heard it, though, and I remember Lorraine coming over to me right after and saying, thank you for making broadcasting history. And then Lauren came over and said, you just broke the last barrier. But I didn't get in trouble, because it was clearly an accident. I didn't get fired or anything. Which I really found quite interesting. That he didn't yeah, get fired. Yeah, I was fired. like, that's pretty cool on there part what they gave him the fuck pass yes well they gave him a fuck pass i guess we could call it that but (laughs) the later on in the show later on in the show people getting terminated over profanity will come up again maybe in part three tune in to find out um whoa so i thought it was an adorable story because paul schaefer is just cute and has so he's very talented um he wrote it's raining men wow yep i did not know that yep he wrote oh my god paul schaefer is technically and i put that in little air quotes a one-hit wonder he wrote it's raining men but he's more well known as you know like i said david letterman he did he was a musical director for the rock and roll hall of fame induction stuff for a very long time if not still random knowledge again So, um, another thing that stuck out to me in part two, um, was that, uh, so Bill Murray has now replaced Chevy Chase, which I think is a fucking great choice on their part for multiple, multiple reasons. Um, and the SNL, it was now, after a year, like the first year, it was like, whoa, what is happening on Saturday nights at 1130? Guys, something weird is going on. And then... Season two, it's like, okay, guys, you know the weird thing that happens on Saturday night at 1130s? Let's, we we, got to watch this because we don't know what's going to happen. So it became a cultural event. And Tom Hanks had a really great quote 
um, on page 101, uh, saying, it was the cultural phenomenon of the age. It was truly as big as the Beatles. It was this huge, riotous thing, and it was on every week, and everybody gathered together on Saturday nights to watch it. This is where it gets good. We would get together in college, and then, later on, when I was working in the theater, we would all get together after shows at a house and watch. Everybody from the theater that I was working at in Cleveland was in the living room of this rented house, watching a 10-inch black-and-white television with a coat hanger for an antenna. And that's just what you did every week. Got together and had something to eat and sat around waiting for Saturday Night Live to come on. Do not tell me there was not weed involved in that. That after, on Saturday night, after your performance at the local theater in Cleveland, fucking Ohio, Cleveland, love you, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but do not tell me that they were not <laughs> passing joints around that house waiting for Saturday Night Live to come on. You know Tom Hanks was. You fucking know it. You know Tom Hanks is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very true. Oh, God. Oh, what else? Well, this is not anywhere related to Tom Hanks, but something that I did want to talk about was the fact that they had a show in New Orleans and it was actually a train wreck. Yeah, that. Let me. Garrett Morris. Damn. I was unhappy about it. I had a song I wanted to do called uh, called "Walking Down Bourbon Street." I'm a composer, and I'm also a native son. I would have been doing a song about New Orleans, but Lauren didn't see it, and it's like I, yeah, I, I just, I, I kind of, I think if that was now. He would 100% have gotten that piece on the air. He would have gotten thousands of dollars to film it from every angle. And I just hate For sure. that as sad as it is, and again, love the show, gotta tear apart the things you love. Things are you love are problematic. Everything can be problematic. But Garrett Morris, he really seemed kind of... Best. He was like a placeholder. He was the as sad as it is he was the token black male i have a quote in here basically about that so marilyn suzanne miller says there was a sort of there was a sort of sisterhood that extended there weren't that many people so we were each other's best friend we didn't even know anybody outside the building by we i mean all six girls the writers plus the performers and garrett morris says either it's that they were all n-words with me or i was a woman with them because i got the same raw deal and it really i mean it really makes me feel for him because it's clear from in part one as well he has like he wishes he had fraternized more but at the same time it was impossible because he was considered an outsider and he was just exactly. there for the yeah. and it's the women were more of a presence but it's very it was very clear the ranking of people in the cast and that sucks but 1975 there's a, another garrett morris quote that i found and this is on page one uh 176 garrett morris i got so many years of uncle tom letters especially when i did the monkey and the whiz uh nobody tells me how to think now the same people who criticized me for doing the monkey and the whiz are doing donkeys and Shrek and making millions of dollars. I guess that's what I get for being ahead of my time. And it's like Garrett Morris with the Eddie Murphy slam. Jesus. Yeah, he really came in for Eddie Murphy's throat there. Like, right. I don't understand why. And it's like... <laughs> Gotta like donkey. Well, <laughs> yes, and it's... Well, because, I mean, Eddie Murphy at the time gave Garrett Morris shit for playing... 
the monk, one of the uh, the monkey and the whiz. I don't know if you ever watched the whiz in high school band or chorus or whatnot. We were subjected to that. Well, I say subjected. It's really great the first time, and it's good the second time, and then like the third, fourth, fifth, and sixth time you see it, it's like, okay, cool. I've been here, done that. Thanks. He got so much shit for playing this character. One of the people that gave him shit was Eddie Murphy. And then Eddie Murphy turns around and takes a role where he takes on a very <laughs> stereotypically black voice um, and he cashes in. And it's like, well, you know, Garrett Morris is saying, if I did that in 70 whatever, and you gave me shit, then you can't turn around and do the same thing and be, you know, it's, it's hypocritical. Anyway, there's no shade to anybody. I'm, is, just, I'm just pointing it out. That's just how bro drama goes. Yeah. Entertainment drama, more like, I fucking love entertainment drama, I'll say it. In terms of bro drama and entertainment drama, can we talk about the fight between Bill Murray and Chevy Chase? Is that something you took oh notes on? Oh my god, on? yes. I, I don't want to just end up reading y'all this, but there's so much good stuff. And, well, you're listening, and we're reading it to you. We're giving you, oh, something we should have said at the beginning of the show, and I'm not sure if I said this, but if you've gotten this far and you haven't figured it out, this is not a comprehensive guide to this book. We are just pointing mm-hmm. out stuff we thought was funny. If you, if this book is so dense so 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 dense so yeah we're just hopping around a lot so forgive us for flipping 123 to 125 and john landis i've only been to snl three times and one time i was there chevy and billy were having a huge chevy and billy were having a huge screaming fight in the hallway lorraine newman it culminated with billy saying to chevy why don't you fuck your wife once in a while and i don't even remember who threw the first punch i, I billy or chevy I'm, I'm guessing chevy after that but it was ugly i'd never seen guys fighting like that let alone people i knew and you know i don't know how he did it but chevy went out and did the monologue a few minutes later watching him from the floor he seemed shattered lauren michaels billy joel the musical guest was out there singing his heart out while all of this was going on backstage poor billy joel i love billy joel that's really what my note was i wrote billy joel was just fucking chilling like he 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 did not deserve to have to witness all that right no he's out there playing his hip fucking single whatever angry is there's a place in the world for the angry young man with the wizard there's people fighting backstage singing you know like what the fuck like yeah i yeah billy joel i he and this has been pointed out on robert evans behind the bastards and if you don't listen to robert evans behind the bastards (laughs) go do it Robert Evans is like Honestly. my pod hero. It yeah, it's I'm fangirling over here. Anyway, He's got his shit together. Yeah, he does. Podcasting is hard. Um, anyway, he's talked about this, but there is an interview where Billy Joel was pretty much like, "Why aren't more people punching Nazis? Like, it's, there are Nazis killing people out here. Why aren't more fucking pe- people punching fucking Nazis?" Billy Joel, <laughs> love you. Um, love him yeah i actually wait this is not snl related sorry but this is just a billy joel fun fact we can cut this or not but i was in st louis like the week leading up to like him performing in st louis and so every fucking radio station 
in the area was playing just Billy Joel songs, and I loved it. (laughs) That's not a problem. That is not a problem for me. This pandemic, like, I have my favorite artists and whatnot, and the people that I listen to more than anyone else, but Billy Joel has been my absolute absolute comfort music like i just i have an entire playlist of like every live billy joel album that has ever been released and i just have it on shelly it's just been that and folklore like it's two opposite sides of the spectrum but it's just like i got i go from like zanzibar to cardigan (laughs) that's my range lately those are some fine choices chevy chase him leaving was kind of seen as a slap in the face as snl is, is like a team sport and the sentiments, some sentiments of this still exist today. Like, groups are ultimately lumped together plus or minus a year or two. Like, uh, Jason Sudeikis, Kristen Wiig are often thought of in the same era. Uh, Adam Sandler, Chris yeah. Farley, the 90s crew. Tina Fey, Amy Poehler, Jimmy Fallon. Like, they're all of the same SNL class or, like, the high school group. It was seen as a slap in the face. We discussed it before. He had to leave, but, yeah, kind of didn't vibe with the improv roots of the show. After Chevy Chase left, the show kind of became, kind of came to be seen as a star-making vehicle, which, yeah, it is, but that's a byproduct. It wasn't the original point of the show. It was just to be funny on TV and to rip apart TV as it existed. I mean, we see that with the ads that aired in the (laughs) first episode. Like, they're just destroying TV ads. They're destroying the television culture. The news. Yeah. It's great. But yeah, so after that, people were trying to get on SNL to be famous as opposed to, like, they just wanted to be funny on TV. Yeah. Please give me a job, sir. Like, yeah. Well, while you're looking at that, I will talk about uh, Space Mom, Carrie Fisher, with yet another great line. Uh, he was deeply offended that I married Paul Simon. And it was just like, just one of those lines that literally nobody else could get away. He was deeply offended I married Paul Simon. Just like, just, oh, you know, it was Tuesday. I married <laughs> Paul Simon. Oh, Next. I fucking love her. <laughs> I miss her so much. When oh god, I was I was at work when I found out she had passed, and I was so sad. I think I was at work too. Wait, we found out together. What the fuck? <laughs> I'm crazy. <laughs> yeah, something that I loved about this. Did you find what you're looking for? Oh, the blues bar. That was part oh, two. They talked about yes. Oh my God! What I would not give to to go back and just see that. Oh, it sounds like so much fucking fun. Yeah, Dan Aykroyd. We opened the first blues bar in '77, I think. We'd take all the writers and our friends and the musical guests and the host of the show and invite them down for a party where you didn't have the public hanging around because usually at the after parties they let the public come in at some point. That's not how they do it anymore, or at least not to my no, knowledge. No, but I mean it's just not 1977 anymore. Like, damn, they did that and then to the movie theaters and boom, Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> like- <laughs> And I love Robin Williams. Love you, baby. Uh, 
Love you, Space Genie. Dan brought me down there the first time. I said, what is this? He said, just step inside. Don't be afraid, Robin. Just step inside. You'll see. There's amazing people, wonderful music. Just step inside. Okay, so Dan Aykroyd, definitely on something when he was saying that. B. For sure. Like, the, the second, the first, or B, or, I don't know what I said there, but the second point being, someone asks, what is this? And the response is, just step inside. Don't be afraid. My immediate reaction is go to going to i'm going to be very afraid or they're definitely not going to step inside um last thing i'm doing is stepping inside that joint like no sir fine out here lorraine newman was talking about the bathroom and it was like oh god that sounds disgusting talking about the bathroom that uh the filthiest toilet anywhere it was vile the walls had water damage were peeling the floor was always wet she says and yet it was a fun hang a windowless hole with lots of cool music people and the stink band named such because they stank too it would be john and danny plus people like david bowie and Keith Richards and James Taylor. Like, A, yes to any of them? And like, oh yes. my God. Dude, I I just love me some classic music stars. And I'll, right. I'll stop there. I don't, I, I don't want to subject the listeners to my weird things about David Bowie. <laughs> Dude, David Bowie was hot. He, oh my God. He had a look. I'll say it. Oh man. <laughs> David Bowie could get it. I mean, not anymore, but he could have. Well, <laughs> um, anyway, so I thought Dan Aykroyd uh, rolling down the armor at the blues bar, closing the building at 11 o'clock Sunday morning, saying good morning to the cops and firemen. It's like, God damn, that is a life. That is a, that's a party life. Well lived. For real. The energy is Oh my god. Another thing in part two that I thought uh, was A, improv is obviously more prevalent or it happened more often. It was A, it was encouraged, but uh, confidence is key. Confidence is key. And so like if a, if a sketch was tanking, uh, they just, you know, say, Frick it, you know, the cast, it, if people aren't laughing, we're going to do our own thing or we're going to make each other laugh. And that at least if we're laughing they'll be laughing at us so i really love that and right. you still you still see that a little today but not as much if you break lauren generally isn't very happy right but sometimes it's pulled off well <laughs> uh are you aware of the coneheads do you know are you familiar with them oh my god of course okay so i really love the backstory as to how the coneheads started uh, on page 140, Dan Aykroyd said, the Coneheads started out as the Pinhead Lawyers of France. I guess I'd smoked a J or something. No shit. And I thought, everybody's heads don't really reach the top of the screen. Wouldn't it be great if you added four inches to everybody? <laughs> Shortly thereafter, says the production assistants used to play a game. We'd get the sketches and then it would be like, hmm, what drug were they on when they wrote this one? best game ever uh the pot sketches were right. a certain way like the coneheads that was a total pothead sketch the quintessential <laughs> pot sketch like yes and if anyone tuned in and watched it and thought it wasn't pot based like 
It's it's just something else. <laughs> there was a sketch that I was not okay with. It did not sound good. Yeah, there was a straight-up pedophilia sketch called Uncle Roy, and that is just a whole bunch of problematic. That's never good. Also, another problematic sketch that never would have aired today. I don't know if you noted this, but uh, Stunt Baby? Did you, did you uh, remember that? Yeah. It was a record scratch moment. Like, I was like, how did this make the air? How did either of those make the air? But Stunt Baby and Stunt Puppy, if they did that today, the show would be canceled by Sunday morning. I mean, that's, like, horrendous. It was so bad. It was so bad, guys. It was so bad. So, yeah, we'll get there in, oh, probably, you know, 20 or 30 episodes or so. Um, Whoa. Oh, how did Al Franken become a fucking senator? Like, I'm pretty sure this book came out before <laughs> he got elected. Like, anybody just doing a remote fact check would be like, I'm sorry, no, this, what is going on? Like, again, I like the man's politics, but how? All he talks about in this book is just like, yeah, so we were all just doing drugs and... <laughs> it's all, we were doing drugs, they were doing this, we were doing that, he was doing her, she was doing, like, it was... I thought the Emily Latella story uh, was absolutely gold. Uh, Gilda was doing Emily Latella. Uh, she would get a topic rolling because she was so hard of hearing and she would try to defend violins on television and Chevy would correct her and tell her, no, it's not violins, it's violence. She said, oh, that's very different. Never mind. So that worked and it was cute for about a year. And now Jane Curtin is on update. We wanted to give more life to Gilda's character. We already had done endangered feces and presidential erections and so on. And now the laugh at never mind was obligatory and we wanted to get rid of it. So I wrote this Jane thing where she says to Gilda, you know, every week you come on and you get it wrong and you're disgusting. You're an insult to the integrity of journalism and to human beings worldwide. Am I making myself clear? I don't want to see you anymore. And I had Gilda say back to her crystal clear. She took a beat and went, bitch. Now this is 1977, okay? So they say we do it in the dress rehearsal and the place goes nuts because bitch on television was groundbreaking. But there was a censor. She says you can't do that. And I said, listen, what what Gilda is calling Jane Curtin when she's saying bitch is she's using the adverb form of the word. In effect, she is saying, you are acting bitchy toward me, which I have heard on television before. She's not saying, Jane, you are a bitch, dot, dot, dot. And would you believe it? She bought this crock of shit. She goes, all right, all right, the adverb then. Biggest, I'm not, right. I'm not fighting this fight. This is not the hill I die on. I also just, not exactly related, but I love the phrase crock of shit. Like, yes, serve her that crock of shit. (laughs) Lily Tomlin had a really good uh, take on this, that there was a lot of misogynist stuff uh, that was demeaning to women or any group at Saturday Night Live, and it wasn't really her style, which I do find, you know, she was involved once or twice in them. It's just kind of like, guys, peace. Um, Or at least that's my take on it. I haven't, I don't know otherwise. Yeah, I really appreciated that. Oh, here is the... Here is the John Belushi and Chevy Chase quote on page 148. Jane Curtin says, John absolutely didn't like being in sketches with women. He told me women were not funny. Actually, Chevy said it to me as well, and I found it stunning. Like, go fuck yourself. Yeah, that is 
insane. <laughs> uh, yeah, Lauren was kind of problematic in this, in that, like, he some people are like, he was a champion of women writers, and then there are other people saying, no, he didn't help us, and, uh, that isn't what Lauren did. Jane Curtin says Lauren didn't help. It isn't what Lauren did. And then, you know, you have Rosie Schuster, who was married to Lauren and dating Dan Aykroyd. Like, she was saying, was he prejudiced against female writers? I think we had to try harder. And it's like, you were married to him. You have bias. You, you didn't have yeah. everyone's experience. Do you remember the Al Franken baby story? Oh, my fucking god how could i ever fucking forget that story like i was horrified when i was reading it but at the same time i was laughing so hard because i could picture him doing this uh do you have the would you like to read this one you should just do it okay well like okay it. thank you i i did not it. oh my god i i did not i did not want you to feel like i was stealing the quotes so al franken his daughter was the first Saturday Night Live baby, the first child born to anybody who worked on the show. And his wife and her sister were all on board with this, okay? Al Franken, my wife came in with her sister first, and I was to bring the baby. My other sister-in-law came with me, so I got a doll the exact size of the baby and swaddled it. I told Franny I was going to do this. And there's like 30 women, and I walk in, and they're all going like, ooh, ah. And I walk in, and I hit the baby's head on this piece of furniture, and I go up in the air, and I come down with everything, everything onto this doll. And there's no way I didn't kill the baby. And the screams, the screams, Tom Davis, the scream that came out of these women, it just made everyone's hair stand on end. They just witnessed this man kill his newborn baby. To this day, I've never heard a more terrifying sound than all those women witnessing this baby being killed by its father, Al Franken. And then my sister-in-law, Carla, walks in with the real babe, Tom. I'm telling you, Al did shit like that. I love him for it. Like, <laughs> That's the kind of thing where it's like, he became a senator. <laughs> okay, what? <laughs> Something else that really kind of baffled me was they tried to be apolitical early on, or at least later on in their early years. And the Daily Show kind of changed that to where, I mean, they were shifting political in the early 2000s anyways, but that was kind of the rise of like, they, well, I mean, they mocked Clinton. They've always been political ever since Lauren came back after Lauren left. We'll get into that drama in part three, or at the end of this right. part. I don't know, it's like they, they avoided it, and I don't know, I feel like that's one of their strong points, is their social commentary. Politics. Right, even, yeah. wh right, whether it's a political sketch or it's not, even if it's just, yeah. Dan Aykroyd getting Weekend Update because Chevy, because Chevy left, I didn't like that either. Him saying they only gave it to me because Chevy had gone, and it's like, because Jane Curtin got it after that. She's incredible. She was incredible. Um, she is. I think one of Lauren's smartest moves was keeping the old guard off of the show. Because I think if he had allowed the older TV stars and the Johnny Carson era 1950s, like, if he had allowed that on there, it would have immediately turned off the 
demographic they were shooting for. It would have just been like, oh God, these are people my right. parents like. I don't no. want to watch this. And you know, now they go the classic rock route or the classic pop route, but that's the point. At, at, at the time, avoiding that was a very smart move on his part. Definitely. Which was not easy. <laughs> Um, but no, what I was going to say is just like, my notes are a little shorter than yours, maybe. Sorry, <laughs> I know. I took so many notes on this part. I don't have excessive mm-hmm. notes for the next few parts. Al Franken. One day, Henry Kissinger calling up, and the call's picked up, and the page goes, Henry Kissinger's on the phone. He wants tickets for his son. And Al grabs the phone and yells into it, you know, if it hadn't been for the Christmas bombing in Cambodia, you could have had your fucking tickets and hangs up. Like, the balls on that. that man. Like, again. For the third or fourth yeah. time, how did he become a U.S. senator with this book in existence, with these stories? Pre- I think we all wish we could tell Henry Kissinger to go fuck himself, so... And especially in such a badass way. Like, no, fuck you, thinking, go, go fucking see SNL. Right? <laughs> and then getting to slam the phone. I think the initial plan of it being a five-year show was kind of crazy. Like, they were just going to go in, shake stuff up, and leave yeah really obviously happy that didn't happen right like it would have made sense but they knew that they had like potential for more yeah no i just can't believe we've been talking this long and we haven't mentioned gene dominion yet and all that she did and all that um shit that she gets (laughs) yeah she's very controversial she kept the show on the air but barely made enemies, but had the cards, the deck was stacked against her, like from day, literally day one. I I think there's a quote in the next part that someone showed up on day one and they were like, oh, there there was a, here's a petition to sign to get Gene Jemanian kicked off the show. And it's like, oh, so that's how this year is going to be. It blows my mind. I think it's Dickie Versal makes a point in the next, and the, the next part. This gets into her so much. She, whoever took Lauren's place was going to be, was going to fail no matter what. And so she was set up, it's like she was going, that position yeah. is never going to be successful. And so they threw her in there knowing like, okay, it'll tank and we can bring someone in to save it. And the fact that that was there, that was how they approached it is kind of fucked because you know just bring someone in that will do the show well you know let's right it's let's not play mind games with people yeah Um, no fuck that all right well i don't i don't know about you but this closet is freaking warm yeah i feel like we're starting to talk a lot more about part three which means part two it's time for part two to come to a close (laughs) so uh thank you for tuning in to saturday night high uh you can find us on facebook at saturday night high pod uh on twitter at sat night high pod and night is spelled n-i-t-e because of character limits we are on patreon at uh, saturday night high and gmail you can send us your stories funny shit that happened when you were high funny shit that happened with you and your friends the first time you got high was it great was it terrifying please nothing with death or injuries or maimings we want happy stories and so you can send those to satnighthighpod at gmail.com and yeah so that's it for me i'm gilda yeah and i'm steph uh enjoy your saturday night happy high happy highs